This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists of the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we learn about ecological restoration in the national parks of southeastern Utah. We hear about the reasons national parks still need restoration and the many ways our national parks are being restored. It's a good show. Stay with us. That's all I've ever wanted to do from the time I was a kid. I have always wanted to be outside. I've always been fascinated by nature. I've just, I always had a really passionate love for nature. And so it just seemed like an obvious career path to me to figure out some way to be able to help. Today on Science Moab, we are talking with Liz Ballinger about the restoration efforts going on within the national parks of southeastern Utah. Liz is in charge of ecological restoration efforts within the national parks of our area, which includes arches, canyonlands, Hovenweep, and natural bridges. There, she works to restore ecological functions to areas degraded by past land use and areas damaged by infrastructure and visitor impacts. We speak about how the parks are using biological controls to fight invasive species, and we learn about how the parks are preparing for climate change. Ultimately, Liz says, the best tool against degradation within the parks is educating the public about all the many fascinating and fragile ecosystems that the park holds. We begin the interview with Liz explaining the goals of ecological restoration within national parks. So, I mean, the overall goal of restoration, ecological restoration, is basically, you know, an intentional action that you are trying to help the ecosystem recover on its own. You're trying to set it on the right trajectory towards recovery. Um, And with the National Park Service, I feel like, you know, we're blessed with a mission that says right in our mission statement that we need to preserve and protect unimpaired the natural and cultural resources for future generations to enjoy. And so it's our job to make sure that resources are unimpaired. And that's what really what restoration is all about. And especially as we're facing climate change and thinking about where our ecosystems are probably headed um, in terms of drought and warming temperatures and all of that. And so I think, you know, what we're, we're after as an overall goal is the best functioning ecosystems that we can possibly have, you know, and we think about it holistically uh, from the physical forces and the climate to the vegetation that's then supporting the wildlife, you know, and it's, it's a big picture vision that you have to take about ecosystem function. Can you give me an example of a restoration project right now that is taking into consideration all of these things that you're talking about? You know, I know that you did a whole little bit on the grassland restoration program, but that's definitely, you know, a perfect example because in that case, we're trying to restore an ecosystem that's suffering from uh, past use in terms of grazing and it's not recovering on its own. 
And in the face of climate change, drought and warming temperatures, we're feeling a particular urgency towards restoring that ecosystem because it's going to get harder and harder uh, to get native plant communities going on those sites. Um, and the physical forces too, I didn't mention soils, but that's a really big component of what we need to think about in ecological restoration, the soils, biocrusts. Um, and so we take all of that into consideration uh, when we're approaching that particular project. And those areas are really important for supporting our wildlife as well. Why do you think those areas aren't recovering? Right, that's a really good question too. And in this case, it really is the physical forces at work. Um, Our grassland areas, the ones that are not recovering on their own, are these big, open, barren sort of areas. You can see really good examples of that when you're driving in Salt Valley uh, out at Arches near the Tower Arch turnoff or Actually, just off the right-hand side of the road as you're going into the needles by the entrance booth, you'll just see these open areas with a bunch of bare dirt and maybe some tumbleweeds and stuff growing out there. Anyway, these areas, um, they're basically scoured out by wind. Really really high winds don't allow soils to deposit there anymore. Um, when it was grazed long ago, you know, the cattle and sheep basically broke up the plants and biocrust that was kind of protecting the surface and those areas kind of eroded, blew away over time and are not depositing again on their own and not able to support the perennial grasses that we're trying to get growing out there. It can be, like I said, counterintuitive to think about why are parks not, why do we need restoration in a protected area? Right. I mean, sometimes things don't recover on their own. You know, just putting a fence around something doesn't always set it on the right trajectory and you have to to give it a nudge. (laughs) And How do you at the parks prioritize what areas are going to get these nudges? There is a lot that we that we think about. In a lot of cases, it'll be a bang for your buck sort of approach. You know, what's the low hanging fruit in terms of areas that we can get to logistically areas that maybe won't require as much labor in order to set them on the right trajectory? And we also factor in uh, visitors a lot in terms of we want to restore areas that are important to visitors, areas that visitors will see. We do spend a lot of time, say, on our roadsides even, dealing with exotic weed infestations or uh, making sure that our roadsides have good vegetation growing, because that's what visitors are experiencing, most of them, as they drive through the parks. How do you on the ground deal with invasive species and getting the vegetation that you want there? What kind of things are you doing? Yeah, we have several things that we do for invasive species. When we do the good old hand-pulling method, and we have a lot of uh, help with that, both from all of our staff and volunteer labor, and we get conservation corps, youth corps that come and help us as well. Um, and we also do uh, herbicide applications. We do we try to you know minimize as much as we can the amount and the rate at which we apply herbicide, the concentrations. Um, but it's definitely necessary for some species to be effective and control to use herbicide. Sometimes we'll even say mow plants that are before they go to seed because that's another pretty effective way to reduce populations as they're growing. Um, and then we're also really interested in and starting to use more and more biological control. And so we use agents that have been uh, approved by USDA, and we go through a very strict permitting process. 
but we have been uh, introducing some biological control agents. You're probably most familiar with tamarisk beetle. I think most people have heard about that. We didn't introduce it. It actually was introduced by Grand County in 2004 and made its way into our parks. And it's actually doing a pretty good number on some of our tamarisk areas. So that's exciting. Uh, we're also using a midge on Russian knapweed, and that's to try to minimize the uh, amount that it can bloom and produce seed. It doesn't actually kill the plants, but that's another one that we're doing. And most recently, we've introduced Canada thistle rust, which is a rust fungus that will uh, cause colony collapse in Canada thistle. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah, so biological control agents, you know, we love it because if we can get them established in these areas, basically they can... They can control these invasive weeds for us. And what I like to say is they turn the invasive weeds into a polite citizen when they'd been acting like a big bully in the veg communities. <laughs> totally. Um, and it sounds like maybe you also do just planting or seeding of native species too? Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. seeding is definitely a big component of what we do. Um, we also do plant salvaging and replanting, but we can only really do that in areas that we can access easily for watering because, you know, due to our climate, we have to provide a lot of follow-up care to plants that you transplant. So seeding is the majority of what we do. We have a very active uh, seed collection program with the Park Service, and we store our seeds, and then we make seed mixes to use in our uh, various restoration projects. So those seeds are then collected all within the parks. Yes, and that's something that has been important for sure, is to maintain the genetic integrity of our vegetation populations. And so we've been quite strict, so far at least, about collecting within the parks. That said, we are definitely thinking about climate change and needing to collect populations that might be more resilient to warmer and drier conditions. So for just as an example, we've started collecting sand drop seed around uh, in Spanish Valley area and then using it up in arches, which is a little higher elevation, because we believe that the communities growing down here are probably a little bit better adapted to a little hotter temperatures, maybe a little less water. And so we are starting to incorporate, you know, changes in our protocols due to climate change. Wow, super interesting. How successful does seeding tend to be within the parks? Yeah, it really varies. It varies by species. And so much is going to be dependent on when you get the right conditions at the right time. And that's a reason why we apply a mix usually of species to a site, because then hopefully conditions will be good for at least, you know, a couple of those species to really take hold. Do you have any examples off the top of your head of of an area that has you've been really happy with the vegetation community that has responded to either invasive treatments or seeding or planting? Yeah, well, one that just kind of jumps to mind is one that nobody ever really sees. <laughs> That's down at the Needles District in what was called their boneyard. There actually used to be a dump at the Needles in the administrative area. And um, one of our folks headed up a restoration project for that site when they decided to, you know, stop using it as a boneyard. And almost across the board, there were some things that were salvaged and planted, but it was almost all just seeded with shrubs and grasses. And the way that area has recovered is amazing. Um, it's, it's on a terrace that probably gets a little bit more moisture than other areas, but it's, it's amazing after just five or six years, you wouldn't have been able to tell that there was a boneyard there before. Wow. Five or six years seems short. I know it does. So that, that's the one, like I said, that jumps to mind and 
like I said, it's too bad nobody ever really sees it. (laughs) But it does feel good that it's out there and it recovered so well. Would you say then that five or six years maybe is an anomaly for the speed of recovery that you've witnessed within the parks? I would say that's true. I mean, in general, things grow slowly out here. Um, You know, we're in a desert environment. So, yeah. What about in riparian areas? What else is going on down in the riparian zones? Riparian zones were focused usually on exotic plant control. Because again, you know, most of our weeds really like to take advantage of those moisture environments and can grow really aggressively in those areas. So generally, if we're able to do exotic plant control, if there's enough native species intermixed in that area, we can do what's called like passive restoration, allowing our native species that are mixed in to reseed themselves and they can, they can then, you know, outcompete everything else in there. How successful have those been in the riparian corridor? I'd say in general, they are definitely successful. We've learned some things too, though. Um, Some of our areas where we've done really uh, extensive tamarisk removal, we've learned that it's better to do this in a more patchwork fashion rather than taking all of the tamarisk out of a site. You want to take it out kind of in windrows or leaving big gaps because areas then will... uh, The tamarisk that's left will basically provide a little bit of shading, a little shelter and all that for our native species to be able to take hold in there. And that we may actually need to do some active restoration of seeding into those areas because some of these huge tamarisk monocultures were just nothing but tamarisk. And so if you suddenly take out, you know, a quarter acre of solid tamarisk, that area is just going to be open and exposed to the elements and it's going to have a hard time recovering on its own. Again, are there any specific places along riparian zones that you felt like looks really good? Yeah, I would have to say that actually Courthouse Wash in Arches is a really good example of of something we're happy with. And we have folks out there this week working on some tamarisk removal. We have an alternative spring break group there from James Madison University who's helping our crew. Anyway, in Courthouse Wash, we've been targeting tamarisk, particularly around our cottonwood stands. Um, part of what, why we decide to remove tamarisk in certain areas is for fire protection around cottonwoods. We've had some really catastrophic fires on uh, benches along the river, for instance, and some of our nice cottonwood stands have gotten just completely consumed by fire. And so we were being proactive in courthouse wash and removing tamarisk in those areas. And now we're, we're kind of we're getting pretty far along and we're targeting just uh, tamarisk almost throughout the whole stretch of courthouse wash where people are hiking. And I think the, our own native species are really rebounding well in there. These projects sound like they take a lot of people. What kind of size crews are necessary to, to accomplish these big tasks? Well, we have a core staff of um, usually about four people are our core staff. Um, and then on top of that, we hire several seasonal employees that will work six months of the year. And then we also hire youth conservation corps, such as a yeah, Utah Conservation Corps, ACE, American Conservation Experience, and Canyon Country Youth Corps is another one. And that's a really great opportunity because we love to get those folks out in the field with us. So we work alongside of them. And I think it's a great opportunity for them to learn about conservation and restoration work in the parks. And it's a great opportunity for us to kind of be reinvigorated by, you know, their energy and enthusiasm, too. If you would have to guess, what amount of the park percentage-wise would you say could really use some form of ecological restoration? 
it's a really interesting question to think about, and especially as a manager that I need to be thinking about all the time, really. Um, but there's different levels of needing restoration, too. So that's another reason why the question is hard. You know, I immediately think about how much degraded grassland that we have, for instance. Um, and I don't know in, you know, the percent of parks, but I would say that, you know, there's probably, I don't know, a quarter of our grassland areas maybe that could use some sort of restoration. And that's the one that really jumps to mind. And then, of course, like I said, riparian zones. And that's, there's a gradation of those that are in need of restoration, I would say. Actually, in, in, my, in my first job here in Moab, back in 03, I worked for the Inventory and Monitoring Program, which is a branch of the Park Service. The inventory part of that program, we did vegetation maps for the park. And there is a map unit called um, Annual Weeds or a, a Weedy Annual Vegetation, something like that. And so that's, that does kind of help us zero in maybe on some areas that, that need to be looked at closer. What are some of the unique challenges of doing restoration within national parks? Because of our dual mission, which again is twofold and, and definitely to serve the visitors, you know, is, is one, the big reason why we're here. Um, but that can also present challenges, you know, because areas that you're trying to restore oftentimes are receiving maybe continuous impacts from visitors, from foot traffic or driving or sometimes infrastructure too, you know, because there's a lot of infrastructure that's needed maybe, or there's debate about what is needed to support visitors here. And so we do spend a lot of our time thinking about that and how to best restore areas once we're installing infrastructure as well. And would you say those are some of the ways in which restoration in a national park probably differs from other land types like BLM land or forest service right. land? Right. Yeah, I would I would say that there's definitely much more of a focus, uh, certainly in our mission statements on visitors. Um, but like I said, it's also there's a big focus on preserving and protecting. So compared to other agencies, I feel like we're we're lucky in that sense that we're able to really think about preserving and protecting and then providing for visitors. Thinking into the future, what are some of the challenges that you anticipate that could cause a need for future restoration or just potentially disrupt the function of these systems that you're trying to put back together? Yeah, the biggest is certainly climate change. Um, I think about that every day. You know, I think about that especially when we have winters like this. Um, I think about the nearly 10,000 con mods that we're going to have out in our grassland restoration areas after this year, hopefully. And I'm just really hoping that we're going to get the right conditions for grasses to start establishing out there. Um, so definitely climate change is the biggest one for me and presents a lot of unknowns as far as what's going to happen. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the ever-increasing number of visitors, too, mm. that are coming. Yeah, it does seem like we're on a trajectory with visitation here, too, that's, that's really going to be affecting certain areas. So we're constantly trying to figure out ways to better manage the increased visitation and not be impacting the natural resources here. Because, again, it's our mission to preserve and protect. Do you have thoughts of how you're going to do that? Ooh, um, well... As you probably know, you know, there definitely is, uh, there's a plan in the works to try to curb visitor impacts and provide a better visitor experience through the reservation system at Arches um, that may be coming online here in the next year or so. 
So that's going to be kind of a pilot, you know, look at doing that. Um, and again, it's, it's, a, it's just always foremost in our minds of how we can best protect the resources and provide for a good visitor experience. We've talked mostly about um, plants and putting plants back in place or removing plants. Um, are you guys doing much with soil remediation or salvaging um, of soil? Right. Um, well, I hate to keep going back to the grasslands project, but certainly that one is very focused on the soils, too, because, you know, putting out the little connectivity modifiers is capturing soil and sediment in those areas to provide a place for plants to be able to grow. We also are hoping to um, get into more biological soil crust salvage and replanting through uh, help from the USGS, actually. For instance, when the salt wash project uh, started up in Arches, one of the folks there went and salvaged biocrust, and they're doing grow-out experiments at the Mayberry Preserve along the Colorado River. And they are going to be figuring out ways to grow biological soil crust better and then hopefully harvest and create an inoculum that we're going to be able to put out on the area even there in salt wash and help restore that area because soil stability really is a big part of restoration as well in our dryland ecosystems. And and you mentioned this before, but I just want to bring it back again. It sounds like with all these restoration efforts, you have the greater community in mind, which includes all of these animals um, that we tend, and birds and all everything mm-hmm. that we tend to not and focus on so much. And, and bugs, exactly are, yeah. microbes that yep. we don't tend to focus so much on because we don't see them as often in, mm-hmm. in our dryland. Mm-hmm. Yes. I feel like I should be saying something about the big salt wash rehabilitation project at Arches because that's another, that's an example of creating a really big disturbance in an area in order to, in the bigger picture, restore it. And the project, you know, I will say up front, it was definitely driven by an infrastructure need, okay? It was driven by the need to provide access for visitors to the Delicate Arch viewpoint and also Delicate Arch parking because when that area floods, you know, visitors were even getting stranded there or maybe not being able to access the trailhead for many days at a time. So anyway, this project is... Uh, they're taking heavy equipment out into the area below the road in Salt Wash and excavating out the tamarisk. And we're needing to do this with heavy equipment because we're trying to pull them out by the roots, basically. Because what's happened is tamarisk has caused sediment to back up in that area over time when there's been just, you know, decades of flooding through there. And the sediment has got, it's gotten to the point now where it's just backed up and is flooding across the road all the time and just backing up across the road. I have a picture from last month where it it hadn't even rained, but just a little bit of snow melt had caused water to be backed up across the road for a week. (laughs) Anyway, so this is just a project that I I wanted to mention. It's, It's creating a really big disturbance. You look out there and you see heavy equipment and you see all this bare ground you know, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what is this going to, you know, is this going to be able to recover on its own? But we're going to be helping it along. We're going to have to do some more exotic plant control in there because we have secondary weeds that'll come in. We're hoping to do uh, soil stability again with biocrust inoculum or other soil stabilizers. And then we're going to be seeding the area with native species as well. So in the big picture, you know, years from now, when that area is tamarisk free and largely weed free, it should be a well restored ecosystem. How often are these restoration efforts being monitored and checked? And, and are you 
doing any kind of experiments within them to mm-hmm. really say like this is the right way to be going about what we were trying to accomplish? Yeah, any of our seeding that we do, we're, we're always keeping track of what have we seeded in that area and then going back and see what what actually grew. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that we do a ton of, we don't, unfortunately, don't have time to do a lot of really quantitative scientific monitoring of our restoration. But some of this kind of quick and dirty looking at what what grows back when we've put in a certain effort will help inform our future efforts. You know, that's what adaptive management is, basically. And the Grassland Restoration Project, to go back to that again, we actually are doing uh, pretty detailed quantitative monitoring in terms of deciding how close together do we put these little con mods? What type of seed mixes do we use in here? Should we use any herbicide to treat the cheatgrass or the tumbleweeds, you know, as part of this, will that improve the success of the perennial grass establishment? So that's one where we're definitely um, doing a lot of quantitative monitoring. And I should say actually USGS is doing a lot of that for us because they've been a great partner in that project going forward. We, We definitely are excited about the results we'll see there. I was wondering what got you interested in doing restoration and trying to understand and and restore these ecological communities. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I mean, that's all I've ever wanted to do from the time I was a kid. I have always wanted to be outside. I've always been fascinated by nature. I've just, I always had a really passionate love for nature. And so it just seemed like an obvious career path to me to figure out some way to be able to help in areas where I thought maybe, you know, natural processes needed some help because of what we were doing or other forces at work. So it was a a pretty easy path for me to choose that. (laughs) And then what do you enjoy about doing the work that you're doing? I guess it's really important to me to believe in, in what we're doing, you know, and to see a purpose in what we're doing. And I think that going out into these areas and seeing places that have recovered is definitely one of the most rewarding aspects. Um, and then, of course, I love the people that do the work as well. You know, we all are looking at things very similarly, and we all have a real love for nature and find it really important to restore these areas. And they're just a great bunch of folks to work with, too. So that's probably one of the best parts of the job. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. It's been really cool to hear about the work that's going on in these parks. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.